0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by m and Bank. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Casper CEO Philip Krim, Jenny Splendid Ice Creams founder Jenny Britton Bauer and
1: District of Clothing founder Deanna Dorsey join the Post to discuss what's next for retail. Let's listen. Hi, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Givon, senior critic at large, and it's my pleasure to welcome today's guest, Philip Krim, founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Casper. Nice to see you.
2: Nice to see you, Robin. Thank you for having me.
1: <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, let's uh, jump right in. And uh, everybody was buying mattresses. How do you, what do you attribute uh, the incredible uptick in sales in 2020
2: to? You know, it's a a question that I think points to a a few different trends coming together. Uh, And I would say at the top of that list is really an emphasis around health and wellness. We've always believed at Casper that sleep uh, is a critical part of the overall wellness equation. And the way we talk about it at Casper is that sleep is becoming the third pillar of wellness. People know they need to eat healthy and know the quality and source of their foods. People know they need to exercise and be active, and I think sleep has become a lot more in focus with an emphasis around health. And you know, with the, the pandemic, uh, putting health front and center for everyone and at the top of every doctor's list on how to stay healthy. And if you know, God forbid, you get the coronavirus, how to combat it. Uh, sleep was at at the top of that list, and so we believe that sleep is becoming a, a more front of mind consideration for consumers and when it comes time to optimizing sleep people look to their bedroom they look to their mattress their pillows their sheets their bedding uh things that they can do during the day to help improve their sleep and with casper our vision since the beginning of starting the company was really to build the world's first sleep company we're seven years into that journey and that's what we're excited to continue to do and we we think that casper can become the preeminent brand and go to shopping destination for people seeking a better night of sleep. The other trend I I would emphasize that that is also good for the mattress industry is just housing overall. Um, People are moving homes, that's always a good catalyst to think about how to upgrade your sleep and upgrade your bedroom. And the housing market continues to be very robust and so I think that's another good tailwind for the mattress market.
1: Can can you talk a little bit about some of the things that uh, left you in a a good position to um, respond to increase consumer demand because I would think that one, you know, buying a mattress is a big purchase, and it's something that people typically want to test out, um, and it's also something that you know really it takes a lot of logistics to just to get it into their home. So, how were you as a company prepared? Uh, for all the issues that came up during um, the shutdown with supply chains, uh, people not working and perhaps wanting a mattress, but not really being able to afford one?
2: Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, Robin, because you're hearing every retailer now talk about omni-channel and how they've built the infrastructure for omni-channel. And that's certainly the case for Casper. But what's unique to Casper versus really, uh, you know, almost everyone else in the retail industry is that we were built digitally native. So we started with a direct-to-consumer foundation, and that's where our roots continue to lie, which means that we're very data-informed, we use technology to enhance the consumer experience, and we've built that omni-channel foundation on a digital platform, which is different than, than other retailers who have brought the digital side of things into focus lately. And I think all of that is necessary in today's retail backdrop because consumers are changing the way they're shopping. They were forced to through the pandemic with retail shutting down, and consumers are embracing digital, or in our case, as you mentioned, it's a high-consideration purchase, so the hybrid of digital and physical as part of their shopping journey. And so we believe that Casper is best positioned to offer that uh, uh, omni-channel approach for consumers, but really it's that... Uh, being able to traverse the physical world and the digital world while shopping for a really imp- important purchase like your mattress that's critical, and th- that's how we how we envisioned Casper from the beginning, and that's what we built, and I think that's what allows us to offer a best-in-class shopping experience for our customers in a category where uh, it-, it makes a big difference on your life, and so you want to get it right, you want to be well informed, and so you're doing your research online. More consumers today are buying online, but many consumers, most consumers actually in this industry, still value and include a physical part of their shopping experience. And that's where Casper has uh, 70 owned and operated retail stores live, and we have great partnerships uh, throughout the country. And so that, that omni-channel approach and that that focus on distribution, both digitally and physically, uh, is really important for us and something that we, we're proud of the progress we've made, but still have a long way to go to build out.
1: You know, you are, among, you are among those companies that really, you know, is considered sort of a disruptor in their field. And that usually means uh, existing in the digital space. But it always seems like the companies that are disruptors and digital eventually always end up having a brick and mortar presence. Uh, you know, whether it's eyeglasses or, you know, rental clothing, there always seems to be this need for a physical space. What does that say about the mindset of consumers?
2: So, you know, I, we we uh, acknowledge the label of disruptor, but I, I would say we, we didn't, as founders, start this business to go, you know, disrupt. It, it was really, uh, we started the business to focus on providing a better consumer experience for customers and consumers that wanted a better night of sleep. And so we we started the business with a direct-to-consumer business model that we continue to run and scale. uh, And then we complemented that with a retail partnership channel for us. But what that means is at the core that we're listening to customers. We're talking to customers. We're following the customer data. We're understanding how consumers shop for these products, what's important to them. We're doing tons of consumer feedback. We, We get Feedback from our customers day in and day out because of our reliance and focus on that data side of things. And what that means is that we listen to our customers and we want to go where our customers are. So when our customers ask for the opportunity to try our products, we listen and we tested into that. You know, when we were first starting Casper, uh, you know, as I mentioned, six, seven years ago, we turned our first office space, which was a second story walk up in New York, uh, a small office space. We converted our only conference room into a trial room. Uh, you know, a mock bedroom so the consumers can come in and try the product. So we knew that physical was going to be really important to us and to our brand from the beginning. But we said, let's follow what the consumers are telling us. And that's led us to the Casper retail expression today, which is fun, educational, a great destination. Uh, You know, consumers of all ages love to come into the Casper stores to hear what the latest and greatest is with sleep. And and the people working our stores, we call them sleep experts because they're trained in sleep. And so, again, when you think about our vision to become the go to sleep destination for everyone, that means we want to be there physically, we want to be there digitally, we want to connect with consumers wherever they might be, and we're going to follow our customers. That's what led us to launch additional mattress products, additional Mm -hmm. sleep products. Uh, It's all through consumer insights and looking at the data, listening to the customer, and being able to deliver what they want in real time because of our. DTC heritage, and our foundation of technology and data.
1: So the message that you were really communicating to consumers was that you weren't selling a product as much as you were selling an experience, the experience of a good night's sleep.
2: An experience and a solution. You know, When consumers are thinking about mattress buying, very often it's just to solve getting a better night of sleep. Maybe it's waking up with backaches, maybe it's waking up hot, maybe it's waking up after sleeping too short. And so consumers want a solution. And that's also why Casper has always envisioned ourselves as a sleep destination, not a mattress destination, not a pillow destination. We're really proud of our pillows, we're really proud of our mattresses, but it's that holistic approach to providing consumers a better sleep solution that I think separates Casper from really any other brand or destination out there. And I think part of that solution and part of that education should come through a great experience. And that's why if you go to Casper.com or if you go into one of our Casper stores, I think you you really get an experience that's unmatched, uh, even outside of our category, really across retail overall. And, and that's part of our, our thesis with retail broadly, is that for retail to uh, be a big part of your business, you have to offer consumers something more than just a place to go shop and buy. You You want to offer them an experience, something that provides education and fun and uh, re- really elevates the overall uh, s- experience when it's shopping for this product, and that's what we envision with Casper stores, and that's ho- hopefully what consumers see has been brought to life when they come into one of our stores.
1: i'm I'm curious when uh, the pandemic first uh, really became a, a reality, I mean, what went through your mind as as a business owner? I mean what what were you know were the first things that made you you know that made your heart stop?
2: <laughs> well, panic set in at first and took a step back and just thought the world was ending. Uh, you know, was, I was of the mind that it, things were going to get very bad, very bad for consumers, very bad for, for retail, very bad for Casper's business. Uh, you know, fortunately, I was wrong. And fortunately, we have great advisors and investors and a great board around the table and a great management team. And, and we all took a step back and we said, Let, let's look at the data. Let's see what's going on. And what turned out uh, happened was very different than than the initial panic that set in for me. Uh, We Mm -hmm. saw a strong consumer spending environment uh, in 2020. We saw a lot of emphasis around the mattress category because of the trends we talked about, like sleep and and the home. And Mm -hmm. we saw really strong demand for our business and our brand and our products. Uh, And so, you know, it it was one where we we were really worried about what the world might look like um, when the pandemic set in. And, you know, fortunately, consumers kept spending and the, the demand for mattresses stayed strong. And we actually ended uh, 2020 having a really strong year and, and set up for a lot of success in 21. And I, I think that was uh, something we were able to capitalize on because we did have that digital DNA. We were able to double down on our e-commerce efforts. Uh, you know, shutting down our stores was was obviously painful and something that, you know, hopefully we never have to experience again. But I because we really had that
1: I was just going to ask, particularly in in Europe, you had to to really cut back. Uh, was is there something particularly distinctive about you know Europe versus uh, in working within the U.S.?
2: You know, we, we looked at every geography that we were operating in when the pandemic set in, and uh, mm-hmm. under the lens of you know this could get really bad. We said, uh, you know, where, where are the areas that we want to make sure we can live to see another day? And what are the areas of our business that, uh, you know, we, we might need to exit? And so Europe was a, an area that we said, you know, we were newer in the geographies in Europe. They obviously came online uh, after the U.S. and Canada. They were markets that were more nascent. We really only had a digital footprint, not a physical footprint. And so we said, let, let's exit our European operations um, during the, the height of the pandemic um, back in Q2 of last year uh, so that we can make sure that we can fight to, to build a great business in North America. Um, and again, you know, Europe would have, I think, performed better than we had feared. But we wanted to make sure we were really focused on the areas of our business that are, are key to you know building Casper long term. And so we have stayed focused on our North American business growth has Uh, You know, been there uh, throughout 2020, and we are excited to have the foundation that we have to continue to double down on our North American presence.
1: How do you prepare for the next phase as more people, um, you know, return to work, as the home becomes a little less of uh, the central focus now that everyone has a new mattress? Uh, I mean, how do you see your business uh, uh, moving forward?
2: You know, fortunately, uh, you know, being in the mattress business, uh, not everyone has a new mattress. I I wish that were the (laughs) case. There are still lots and lots of people that need to upgrade their mattress and and improve their sleep. Um, Housing continues to be very robust. Uh, You see a lot of housing momentum uh, with people moving out of urban centers. But even as trends reverse and people move back into urban centers, all of that turnover in housing will be good for the mattress industry. Um, And one thing that hasn't changed pre and and post pandemic will be the emphasis on sleep as part of the health equation and and people investing to upgrade their quality of sleep and choosing the the best quality brands like Casper to do that. And so we we think it's a a very robust backdrop for Casper for years to come. We think low interest rates will be key to driving a robust housing environment. And we think sleep uh, as a key area of focus for wellness will only continue to come more and more into focus for consumers. And you know it's been a great time to be in the mattress industry and you know maybe 20-ish million folks upgraded their mattress in 2020 uh, in the US. Um, we think more will even do so this year. And so the, the industry is gonna to continue to grow. Um, more and more people will continue to replace their mattress and we'll be there to support them whether they wanna shop digitally at Casper.com or in one of our own stores or one of our retail partner stores. Well, we only
1: have a couple minutes, and I do want to get to at least one audience question. Uh, and it is uh, what permanent changes in retail do you see as a result of the pandemic?
2: You know, I I think there was a lot of talk about retail being, um, you know, overextended in the U.S. for for years, frankly. And I think the pandemic has uh, forced every retailer to look at what their physical footprint is and make sure that's right sized to the size of their market and the size of their business. So with Casper, you know, we slow down the pace of expansion within our retail stores. And we're going to let the data on how consumers want to shop for our products dictate how we open up stores. I'm still very bullish and excited about the physical retail presence uh, within retail overall. And Casper's footprint will continue to grow. Um, But we're going to let the data inform it. You know, right now, it's uh, a very interesting consumer picture throughout the U.S. And you're seeing very different consumer behavior in different regions. You know, states like Texas and Florida have reopened and consumer trends are very different than places like New York and California. And so it's one where... It's very difficult to paint a broad brush on on what the the future of retail looks like or what the future playbook is for specific retailers. And I think you really have to take a very specific view on who your customer is and what their consumer behavior will look like over the next one, two, three years uh, in order to see what retail looks like across the country.
1: And does your customer tend to be uh, a younger consumer, one that's just more digitally savvy?
2: You know, at this point, uh, we really see customer profiles across the full spectrum. We have a great young consumer uh, business uh, that's really focused on the original mattress that we sell, the original Casper. That's about a thousand dollar price point um, and it's our most popular selling item. And we really see a, a ton of emphasis on that product line um, with younger consumers. But we also see older consumers that are, are, you know, uh, less price sensitive and really want to invest in the quality of sleep looking at our uh, products, including products that we just launched like the Wave Hybrid Snow, the Nova Hybrid Snow. Those products uh, are in market and we're seeing uh, a lot of resonance with older consumers across our higher price points. And so we really think that Casper will become the go-to destination for consumers at all ages and all price points. and, And that's why we've expanded our selection of products uh, to, to make sure that we are uh, the go-to destination for anyone looking for a better night of sleep.
1: So it's not all about the millennials.
2: It's not all about the millennials. Millennials deserve <laughs> a great night of sleep, and, and we're certainly there for you. Um, but everyone does, and, and we really think of Casper as a much broader brand than just a millennial brand.
1: Well, with that, before I insult millennials anymore, uh, (laughs) we will have to leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us.
2: It's great to be with you, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: And uh, please stay with us because I will be back with Jenny Britton-Bauer after this short video. Welcome back. My next guest is Jenny Britton-Bauer. She is the founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream. Welcome to Washington Post Live.
0: Hey, Robin, it's nice to be with you.
1: It's very nice to have you, and I have to say that your product is one that is after my own heart. So <laughs> I am more than happy to eat ice cream for breakfast.
0: Well, we we are fast friends then, cuz I'm I'm breakfast, lunch, dinner, all of it. Yes. <laughs>
1: So I, I feel like the the your product your company is sort of the company that so many people sort of dream about uh, creating, and you started in Ohio and and I'm wondering if from the beginning you sort of saw this as you know a company that could grow and be national or did you sort of see yourself as the corner ice cream shop.
0: I had this idea. Um, that ice cream could be uh, better and more interesting uh, and and particularly people like me, sort of more sort of adventuresome and I came from the art world. And if so, that the opportunity was really big. I saw Ben and Jerry's in grocery stores and honestly, I was like, if they can do it, I can do it in my own way. So, um, So yeah, no, I mean, it was... It was start small and build. I did not have the resources. I like to say that I'm a start small and build entrepreneur Um, or the know-how. And it turned out to be a very good thing, really my superhero power. Um, I just started. And so I was able to challenge a lot of the sort of traditional... Um, ingrained thinking in ice cream and do things over time, like take stabilizers out of ice cream, emulsifiers out of ice cream. I mean, because people really weren't thinking this way in ice cream, but I I was because I wasn't coming from the inside. And the same is true in how we structured our business. Just by going very slowly, uh, we were able to create a business that actually is what I think of as a company. The word company means you're not alone. It is about community. And so so I actually think it ended up being this, like, superhero skill or power for our company um, that we started really small in a farmer's market and grew really slowly over many years with our customers in our community.
1: And it feels like the brand still has a very close connection to to those roots. And it, it sort of makes me think of, you know, the idea of a lot of European food companies where there's a real emphasis on um, sort of the starting point of a particular product, you know, the ground in which certain ingredients are grown. Does being a Midwestern born brand figure into just the way that you think about the product and the way perhaps that people relate to it?
0: It is so much being part of the Midwest or being from the Midwest, and I'm actually from Peoria, Illinois, so deeper Midwest. is a part of just who we are to our core. I probably couldn't even identify all of the ways in which that Midwestern sensibility um, in, infuses literally everything we do. I mean, building a company as a community, um, starting in a farmers market, being about you know hard work, uh, putting your name on it, which is what I say. You know, that's one of our values at Jenny's. Like when you do something, put your name on it. You know, do it right. Um, quality. I mean, I grew up with artists in the Midwest, so there's very much a sense of uh, in the Midwest this like uh, creative, absolute creative freedom. We're not burdened by the sort of cultures that are so heavy I've learned in other uh, areas too. So, so much uh, from the Midwest is really a part of who we are. And then of course service. Service is a part of everything we do also and that's such a Midwestern um and and other places too, but definitely midwestern thing.
1: You you've mentioned your your background in in the art world um, a couple of times, and I'm curious how has that informed you as a business person?
0: Well, it's interesting. I I still like to come from that perspective of art, but I had to learn early on. I started my first ice cream business in a farmers market in 1996. I walked out of art class. And I had a lot to learn and one of the things that I had to learn is that, you know, artists can kind of sort of see the world from their viewpoint and create from that perspective. But um, uh, building a company is really a shared creation and a shared act of creation with your team, your customers, your community, and all the stakeholders. And that, uh, until I got that lens, that it was, I had a role to play here, but there were other, uh, other people, that it's really a fellowship um of people. And I actually get fellowship from Tolkien, too. It's sort of the idea that um, we're all coming in with our skills and our awesomeness, and then together we make something greater than the sum of its parts. But everyone here is important, And everyone here is about um, you know, has a role in shaping this organization. And so once I learned that, um then I was kind of off and running. And that was really after my first business closed, and I got to start again back in the North Market, which is our public market here in Columbus. Um, and you know, start back, putting one foot in front of the other.
1: And, just, and we can just sort of pivot to, um, you know, a year—well, more than a year ago, March. Um, what went through your mind as the pandemic became a reality, and you started thinking about your business, about the community of uh, employees? Um, how did you react?
0: Well, first of all, we, um, you know, are are you know we were a little panic stricken, um, you know, in in the in the first moments. And what what we've learned when we find ourselves in moments like that is to pause, take a breath, and and face the challenge. And so our leaders came together immediately, and we created a whole bunch of potential scenarios that we could be um, uh, like leaning into. Um, And from there, we were able to create a plan. One of the things that we did that I think was really impactful is that we actually kind of addended our mission. We believe that the mission, our mission statement, isn't just sort of a a brand thing, but it's actually the marching orders of everyone in the company, that we need to be working from our mission every day, all the time. And so we kind of addended the mission temporarily, which I know is kind of an odd thing to do for a company, but it enabled us to do things a little bit differently and quicker, and so we went from this idea of make better ice creams and bring people together, which is our sort of standard mission, which will never change, we'll always have that, um, to really having this idea of um, keep people safe, period, and uh, bring people back to work, uh, you know, AKA survive this year. So those two things became our you know absolute marching orders, and then that was, from there, we were able to really make a plan but going back to that moment, you know, you think like um, you have to be, you know, one of the strengths or one of the, the sort of things that you do as leaders in your business is try to project what the future is going to be like, you know, and it's pretty easy when times are good. But when things like this happens, when the bottom drops out, you lose your ability to to, to predict the future. And that would, that was what was so hard. And so we were having to make decisions that may have contradicted some of our other experts, or, or maybe not the experts in the country, but what other people were saying in the country. You know, we, we didn't believe we were going to be back to normal by July, for instance. So we decided to take the risk, which is a pretty significant risk for a company our size, to switch from uh, scooping in our stores, which means bucket production, we're filling ice cream in buckets that we can scoop from, to pint production, because we saw we were going to shift to a home delivery. And, and we took that... Um, that's that enormous risk, actually. if it had to, if we had been all back by July, that would have been a tough thing for us to 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 manage. But it was the right decision. And so many other things throughout the company were like that. And anybody who's in a company knows that it was everything the back end stuff, the supply stuff became the really, really challenging thing. So we just committed to meeting people where they were, uh, making decisions quickly, being able to communicate that out, and of course, number one, keeping everyone safe.
1: I'm curious when you are trying to make that decision about, you know, shifting to the, the pint production and you're laying out the pros and cons and you're trying to see into the future and the experts are telling you one thing and your gut's telling you something else. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Like how do you how do you find your way through that as a business person?
0: Well, first of all, you're not one person. I, I, I was one small part of a really awesome team of 12 people. We, we assembled sort of a, a special council in our team um, of people who didn't really overlap in their expertise at the table, whether it was a communications or operations person or, or, um, or, or HR or, or, or lead, all of everybody had a very important role at the table. And we'd worked together for a long time so we had a a real camaraderie i think and trust for each other and that is something that was a massive advantage i think uh, when it comes to these kinds of things because when somebody puts something out you know we all listen and that was um and that was how we did it i mean this team had this you know this idea we were going to figure out how to survive we went away we came back each of us with ideas. We put together, def, uh, I think, four, or maybe even by the time it was all said and done, maybe six scenarios, potential scenarios. And then we were able to find that sort of overlap and where we could make it, uh, where, where we could act and, and get it to uh, the company to continue to move forward um, under this, you know, extreme circumstances.
1: Another uh, part of the, the year uh, was, of course, uh, the social justice protests and just the, the greater awareness of of inequality and the need for diversity. And you are your company is, is very outspoken in that regard. Um, um, it's um, you you put your values out there. And I mean how does a, how does how does a company go about debating whether or not this is something that it should weigh in on, or it's something that it should simply keep quiet about and focus on product?
0: I don't know how often we've come together to debate um, about these kinds of things. I think that, well, that's not true. I mean, I think when it comes to people and human beings and freedom and justice and fairness, those are issues that are near and dear to to us because we have always been a company that um, that is close to our community, that believes that we're all in this together that that celebrates you know what we think of I mean flavor the idea that you know Uh, When you look up the word flavor in the dictionary, it actually means the essential character of something or I always add someone. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this idea that we're all unique and we're all gifts to the world and we all deserve, um, you know, fairness and justice and equality and freedom and all of those wonderful things uh, that America affords us or is, is, is meant to afford us. I mean, that's just something that we have always kind of had in our in our hearts. And, um, and this year we realized that even we, even with that, we had made, you know, we weren't perfect. I mean, at all, that we, we still had a lot of learning to do. So we committed very deeply to that work. Um, and, and anyway, I, I just go back to, it's our values. You know, if you don't act on your values, they're not your values. And so we can't ask anyone to trust us. And, and it starts with us, our company, because our own team, if they don't trust us, then no one else will either. Um, unless we actually act on our values, that doesn't mean that we have to be out there on the front line of every political issue at all. But when it really is near and dear to us, uh, like like in the way you know, like in community and 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 in you know fairness and equality, um, mm-hmm. then yes, we we do need to stand up and put our um, ourselves out there because otherwise, I don't think our our customers, our team, will continue to trust us that we care. Mm-hmm.
1: And increasingly, it, it does seem that consumers, uh, particularly younger consumers, uh, really do want to, um, you know, put their money where they feel their values are being supported. I mean, do you do you get that feedback from your customers? And, and I'm wondering if you've ever gotten negative feedback.
0: Um, we almost always get positive feedback um, about all of this. I mean, of course, sometimes when you when you have an opinion about something that you make known, um, other people who don't share that opinion are going to make it known. Or if you, uh, you know, it, these are all nuanced. And so every once in a while you have a conversation with somebody, but for the most part, it is extraordinarily positive. Um, and that's, um, yes, people are, are looking for companies where, you know, are... <laughs> our biggest power maybe is that is where we spend our dollars um, in in our country um, so people are looking for where uh, exactly how they can um, use their dollars to do the most good but um, but we didn't start this. This didn't start just now. This has been building for many decades. I mean, when you look at companies like Patagonia and and also Ben and Jerry's and so many of the other companies, this is something that has been building for decades, and and um, and that is in many ways ingrained in American entrepreneurship and American business. And I think that um, maybe the pendulum kind of went to one side, but we need to get it back. And and some of us are willing to go even a little further, um, in terms of you know just really. Uh, living to our values and making them very known, and uh, being accountable to those.
1: And to that end, um, I do want to talk about uh, the ice cream flavor that uh, broke the internet practically, which was the collaboration with with Dolly Parton. Um, can you can you talk about like these these uh, special flavors? And there was also uh, a White House flavor for um, uh, your number one fan, uh, President Biden. Um, so how do how do those work, and what does it mean to you to be able to speak through ice cream?
0: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to say that you know creativity. Well, first of all, creativity lives everywhere, but when we're talking about um, you know things like um, like this, we're talking about the kind of creativity that impacts like flavor and voice and communication and uh, how how we make people feel in the world. And I do think that um, that creativity and the the sort of acts of creativity um, haven't gotten their due yet this year when it comes to how mm-hmm. we survive, you know, as business in the crisis of, of 2020, the multiple crises of 2020. Um, being um, Jenny's is a creative led community spirited company. That's kind of how I like to say it. So. You know we're always trying to make something new uh, from this viewpoint of make people feel loved. Um, and that's just so important for us. So yes, when we uh, we've done so many flavors this year that that we just kind of felt were you could you could sort of say meeting people where they are this year. You know, we wanted to spread joy and love this year and speak a common language, something that we can all kind of share and recognize. And we did that with many flavors. We had one called Sunshine last year. Um, that was gray in color uh, in May last year, so it was right as this was all hitting. It was gray in color, but it tasted like sunshine, and the message was the sun will rise again and will shine again. Um, Of course, the White House flavor went nuts this year. That was another flavor that we did that kind of went viral for us. Everything Bagel is another one that just, it's still going strongly, and people loved it so much, believe it or not. And then, of course, um, our collaboration with, uh, maybe the most amazing human being on earth right now, Dolly <laughs> Parton. I mean, she's just incredible. Uh, it was obviously her. We'd been working on it for a year, but um, but it hit at just the right moment when she's doing so much amazing things. She's just such a, a beautiful spirit here that we are lucky to have and um, and the, the flavor was strawberry pretzel pie it's something that I grew up with that I love very much and I knew she would love it and she did and so uh, yeah um, you could say it broke the internet and I don't know that anybody's ever <laughs> sold that, much ice that quickly I think we sold 5,000 pints in three minutes and then another 7,500 in another four minutes and we did it in two um, stages so it was intense and that kind of love yeah. that just or Will animals. it make
1: a reappearance anytime soon?
0: You know, when we do these, they're kind of over when they're <laughs> over. Um, so you'll have to wait. Oh, that's brutal, Jenny. That's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> but we've always got something amazing coming um, down the pike because we are a creative-led company and community-spirited. So we're here uh, to, you know, to make you feel loved, to make you have that little bit of joy in your life, to give you something to talk about, a reason to come together.
1: Well, with with that, I am going to just leave it there on that uh, spirit of optimism and say thank you very much for joining us this afternoon.
0: Well, thank you very much for this conversation. What a wonderful conversation.
1: And please stay with us. We will be right back with my final interview, and that's with the District of Clothing founder Diana Dorsey. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. If you're just joining us, I'm Robin Givon, Senior Critic at Large. And my final guest is the founder of District of Clothing, which is based here in d c. It's my pleasure to welcome Deanna Dorsey. Hello, Hello thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Um, I you know it's funny because I have asked other guests, sort of, you know, what they, we're thinking back in March of 2020 when so much changed, and you essentially built an entire company uh, in that moment. I mean, it was, to some degree, a hobby. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the birth of District of Clothing? Yeah, I would
3: actually call it the rebirth of District of Clothing or the continued birth of District of Clothing. So, um... 2020 happened to be our fifth year um, when March came around I never imagined that we would be entering um, our fifth year with a pandemic and I knew very quickly that I needed to pivot to not only remain um, at peace and productive but also to be a, a healthy contributor to my home um, you know as we continued moving forward throughout the year some really awful things continued to happen. But I think our messaging of encouraging progression, inspiring action, and supporting self-love really sort of met the moment.
1: I mean, it had been described as a side hustle. Um, But you had always worked in fashion, and you had a long career, well, a, a long career in fashion. I mean, what was it that you sort of brought with you from your training in Milan, from working uh, at Oscar de la Renta and at other companies into your own brand? I mean, I think that's a leap that a lot of designers envision themselves making. Um, what things did you learn that um, helped you build the company? I
3: think the most important thing that I learned was how to be effective and efficient um, and to be mindful of my budget um, and mostly also to be mindful of my my consumers, my community. Um, Through my training, I learned um, really the the focus needed to be on my community that that I wanted to serve. And through District of Clothing, um, which started off because my prime client had went on a spending freeze, I knew very quickly that I needed to to do something that would allow me to support myself during the rough months. Um, the focus has really just been on our community and the folks that we wanted to serve through apparel that would help them um, continue to do the things that they were doing already every day.
1: I know you've talked a little bit about what it was like to see some of the pieces from your collection uh, being worn by um, protesters as they march for um, racial justice um, to see some of your pieces uh, being worn um, as people have you know raised their voices um, for uh, voting rights, all these uh, very sort of big political, social issues. I mean, do you find that um, your your clothing is inextricably linked uh, to, Sort of politics and social change. Yes, I'd say so.
3: You know, even w- when I was being introduced here, and I saw that video, it um, it gives me pause. It it really um, has me quite emotional when I see it and when I think about it. Um, to know that people are not just spending their hard-earned money on district clothing items, but they're also choosing to bring them along with them um, during moments of of Um, progression, moments of change, and during times when they want their voices to be heard. um, It's an absolute honor. It reminds me that I'm doing the right thing at this time and helps me to continue moving forward. Um, We really just wanted to, like I said, inspire progress, excuse me, inspire action, encourage progression, and support self-love. So I I think, you know, and serving our community and creating these items that do that, we are 100% um, connected to the change makers making change. I think it's very much the linchpin to District of Clothing, our
1: existence. I mean, that is a heavy lift for a shirt or a a cap. I mean, but I think it speaks to certainly the, the power and the resonance of fashion. Um, can you talk a little bit about the um, the role that you think that fashion plays in the broader culture? Yeah,
3: I think it is really important that fashion and just art as a whole reflects the mood of the country. I think it's important that we as artists and creatives um, are using our platforms and our work to help reflect the truths, especially truths that um, we know to be true that maybe other people haven't yet Quite seen or experienced, um, and I, 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 you know, I think it is imperative that when you have a platform, that you use it to inspire some sort of good and to share some sort of good. You know, what is best for business is really best for um, humanity and the planet, and that's that's essentially what allows District of Clothing to continue working. Um, alongside, I don't believe that t-shirts and hats and sweatshirts are activists by any means or by any means. It's not, um, a, it's, it's maybe an arm of activism, but we say, you know, our, our clothes won't change the world, but the people who wear them are. And we want to continue to be a, a part of that, of that growth and change. In order to um,
1: keep Um, supplying your customers. I know that at one point you, um, you know, had made a video thanking them for their patience because of delivery issues. Um, I mean, what were some of the the hurdles that just, you know, logistically as a business person, you had to grapple with um, as everything uh, was in upheaval? So many hurdles, right? Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) If you
3: can remember, if you three. even <laughs> just <laughs> top three, I think remembering that I needed to pivot quickly and to adapt quickly, um, remembering that it didn't have to be perfect, but it did have to be timely um, and just keeping, you know, humanity at the center of everything we were doing. So it was very important that I remained honest and vulnerable and clear and transparent. And with every step, of the way in 2020, and even now in 2021, that's sort of been the plan and the goal.
1: The, the last thing that you said about, um, you know, sort of the, the role of humanity in a business, um, I think about it even more broadly, the role of humanity within the fashion industry. Um, how do you, do you see the fashion industry uh, changing and recognizing um, a need to be a more humane and and welcoming place over the last, as as things have sort of come to the into the spotlight uh, over the last year.
3: I hope so. I think things are starting to change, but I do believe there's lots of change that needs to continue to happen. But I do think that we are starting to make um, progress in the fashion industry, you know, between high fashion and fast fashion and small business fashion. Um, the focus really is sort of on a s- sustainability, the focus is on, you know, again, the human factor, and then on making sure that we are not appropriating various different cultures. Uh, we still have quite a ways to go, but I think having these discussions is starting to allow more people to be aware, um, of where they're spending their dollars and how they're spending their dollars and, um, and the items in which they're choosing to wear.
1: To to that end, um, what has been um, the role of of social media for you um, with your business and um, just increasing uh, the awareness of it? Yeah,
3: we probably started at the beginning of the pandemic with maybe 7,500 followers. Um, Probably half of those were active followers. And over the course of the last year, we've grown exponentially to, uh, I think maybe we're at a little over 18,000 followers. Um, initially, if you can go back to March, um, remembering that the hashtags were flatten the curve and the hashtags were wash your hands. Um, That was sort of the initial pivot. We just wanted to be a resource of of correct information. And so we were sharing everything that we could um, from a meme perspective or tweets, various tweets, repurposing tweets, and also videos um, that would reflect the things that we needed to do to help, help, excuse me, flatten the curve at that time. Um, Fast forward, maybe a couple of weeks later, you know, it was more interesting, um, or I shouldn't say interesting, it was more important that we were not trying to just show beautiful clothes and t-shirts and so forth. And so we wanted to really talk about what was happening. I know here at my house, there's four of us here we had laundry for maybe 5,000 people and it didn't make sense. So we used it as a way to also kind of break up the monotony um, of the fear and the sadness and the chaos um, and really just sort of use it again to kind of focus on humanity and go back to what was really happening that people were truly, truly experiencing during quarantine.
1: As we start to see some some light at the end of the tunnel and you look at um, retail from the perspective of a a small business owner, what do you expect the future to look like? Or what do you hope the future to look like? I think uh, lots of
3: changes are probably starting sooner than we expect. Um, I think there will probably be less brick and mortar stores, but there will be better brick and mortar stores. There will probably be a combination of um, lots of small businesses sort of joining together to make things um, more cohesive and accessible for folks. I think small businesses will probably um, also, excuse me, I think also small businesses will also join their resources together to help them, let me just clear it down, to help them access more people and then also to share resources. So as rents will continue to rise, um, you'll see lots more small businesses kind of coming together to create cohesive experiences and maybe, maybe not even cohesive experiences, um, but also to employ local um, folks with local delivery and so forth. I think also probably drone delivery is a lot sooner um, on the horizon than we may be thinking. Um, And then of course, anything and everything sustainable that's possible.
1: When when you say coming together, do you mean uh, small businesses collaborating or uh, just sort of working together in order to, um, um, you know, take advantage of uh, that combined size?
3: Yes, definitely yeah. working together. Um, I do believe that external partnerships will be really very important over the next few years, um, but also sort of banding together to share access to, to customers and communities as well as resources.
1: And are you of a mind that people will continue to move towards a much more informal, uh, relaxed way of dressing, of presenting themselves in public? Or if um, we will shift back to something a little bit more formal? I think there's going to be
3: (laughs) my crystal ball here. I think there will be much more of a hybrid. Um, You know, it is very comfortable to wear t-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and so forth. But I think we, um, as we kind of head into this new roaring 20s, people will want to get dressed up again. I know I miss getting dressed up, that's for sure.
1: Well, I so very much appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. I'm going to have to leave it there. It's been an, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's an honor to speak with you, Robin. Thank you. And please uh, come back and join Washington Post Live at one o'clock Eastern today when my colleague Karen Tumulty speaks to Cindy McCain.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.